Welcome to season six of the Florida Institute for Child Welfare podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Magruder. This season, we will hear from researchers, advocates, and folks with lived experience in child welfare. Through these conversations, we hope to gain insight on how to meaningfully co-create knowledge alongside those we aim to serve here at the Institute, children, families, and workers. Let's get started. Today, we're joined by Dr. Mariana Colvin, an Associate Professor and Associate Dean of Research and Academic Effectiveness at the Sandler School of Social Work at Florida Atlantic University. She is also an affiliate with the Florida Institute for Child Welfare. Dr. Colvin was the principal investigator of a recently completed study funded by the Institute, a platform for social engagement, engaging and supporting the voice of youth in foster care receiving independent living services. This was a competitive award focused on supporting child welfare-involved youth and young adults for success. Great to be here. We're also joined by Jill Carr, Director of Education and Community Outreach at the Florida Atlantic University Theater Lab. The Theater Lab's mission is to inspire, develop, and produce new work, audiences, and artists, and engage the South Florida community with world-class professional theater performances, workshops, and conversations with leading playwrights and theater artists. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to learn more about this project and also how you incorporated youth into the study. So Mariana, I'd like to start with you. When you saw the Institute's call for research come out around supporting youth and young adults for success, how did you arrive at proposing this particular study? There are real serendipitous elements to how this study came about. I know that right before the call, I had actually seen an email about FAU's Theater Lab and their partnership with community agencies to engage youth living in foster care in their work. And I had reached out to Jill just to connect and say, hi, we're on the same campus. We have a child welfare institute in our Sandler School of Social Work. This is what we do, our research, our certificate program. And we immediately began brainstorming opportunities of kind of creative work to do together. And I think even at that point, one of the ideas was to think about using photo voice and photography research in the work that Theater Lab was doing. And then the Florida Institute for Child Welfare proposal call came out that spoke directly to uh, the voice of youth and emphasized incorporating youth's voice into this proposed research project. And I remember writing Jill back and thinking, wow, I think this may be quicker than we thought, but what an amazing fit. Should we do it? And so it just felt like all of the pieces were falling into place so quickly. I will add that we had a second partner in this project, our local community-based care agency, ChildNet, and they had been interested and we've been talking for a while about better understanding the experiences of youth in their care. And they had identified self-determination and relationships and connectedness with others and self-advocacy as topic areas that they wanted to support in their youth. And so these, of course, were also elements in the literature, but the narrowing to these topics was really community driven. And so when the call was received, those conversations had already been happening with that partner as well. So it just felt exciting to have the chance to act and get started and respond to something that was so relevant to all of us. Mariana, can you tell us a little bit more about photo voice methodology that you mentioned and some of the more community participatory action research methods that you described? Yes, and choosing a method 
obviously it's driven by and follows the research questions, but photo voice is a method of inquiry and our election to use it was really driven by that priority to hear and learn from youth as the experts in their experiences. And so it's a method of inquiry that really visually documents and honors the voices and experiences of the participants in the study. So it's a type of participatory action research, and it's grounded in a strengths approach that's really theoretically informed by feminist theories and empowerment theories. And so in this process, as guided by the method, youth were involved as co-researchers in the decisions and direction and the analysis process itself. And so the design of the study really seeks to reduce what is often a power differential in research between the researchers and the participants. And it's probably the power differential that is often in social service relationships with providers and clients. And so instead, we really wanted youth to be empowered in the process and photo voice methods are an opportunity where that's embedded in the design of the study itself. And it's also just a really creative and expressive opportunity to hear from each other and a different way to facilitate gaining insight into people's worlds. And so that's a little bit of an overview about what photo voice is. I encourage everyone to take a look at the photo voice research that's out there and what it's offered and what it's created to offer platforms and really elevate the voices of populations that too often are not heard. Thank you so much for providing that overview of the photo voice methodology. And I know in this particular study that you all worked with a couple different groups of youth and you provided them with training around photography and provided the equipment for them so that they could document aspects of their life that were relevant to your particular research questions. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that process looked like and then share some of your findings? So we did have the opportunity to work with two different sites. And so this study by design really focused on youth who were receiving independent living services. And these youth were also living in group home settings. So we had two different groups at two different group home sites. And this allowed us to get perspectives across different settings. And one of the sites in particular also was specific for youth who were preparing to be parents or are new parents. And so that element was also present in the sample and is important to highlight. But for the study to be implemented, the design really involves being able to embed a process of dialogue and being able to come back together in multiple iterations over a period of time. And so at each group home site and with each group, we began with the initial session and then After a period of a week or two weeks or whatever the interim was, when they were taking photographs, they would then come back together and we would have an opportunity to dialogue as a group collectively and process what it is that they wanted to bring and share. That happened across four different sessions for each of the two different group home sites. So about seven to eight hours was spent with each group in kind of that processing collective exchange. The summary of what we found in terms of results, and when I say we, I mean the youth as well, because they were active in the process of deciding kind of where we went and the different questions that we wanted to emphasize and what was most important in their minds and hearts and to discuss with each other. So it does feel a bit daunting to boil down. It was so much, but in short, under self-determination in particular, as a focus of the study, youth stories really described working towards self-determination in environments where they experience a high amount of vulnerability and high stress. And so instead of exercising self-determination, youth alternatively often described environments in which things happen 
to them and depicted ways that they're really vulnerable to the choice of others. So how do you practice self-determination when so many choices are made for you? They also describe trying to stay motivated in environments where there are very high stakes. And so, like we said, some were new mothers or preparing to parent, and they emphasize how strong they had to be for their children and really the worry of maybe their child also entering foster care as a high stakes consequence that was weighing on them. Others expressed pressure to succeed framed as not wanting to experience homelessness. And so the recognition of the high stakes consequences they really perceived in their future. And so how does self-determination work in that environment and with that lens that they carry? I'll say that for relationships and connectedness, their stories and photography really beautifully conveyed the importance of relationships in their lives. And there were numerous examples of trusting relationships that they shared But heavy emphasis was really on the presence of deep distrust that also pervaded how they were able to connect with others. And of note, youth were really more likely to describe positive relationships with other people who were also youth compared with adults, and particularly young people who had similar experiences as their own. So that's actually a category where the volume of data and conversation and photographs rose to the top. And finally, for self-advocacy, these also fundamentally expressed experiencing difficulty and asserting their voice and instead kind of shared experiences of feeling unheard or misunderstood in their interactions with professionals and adults often. For example, you're making decisions about my life, but you barely know me. So this included perceptions that professionals in their lives and others in the community also have preconceived notions about youth and care that make them feel like asserting their voice is even more difficult. They have to overcome those assumptions. A lot of their expressions describe the need for people and places and platforms, those opportunities to assert their voice and participate in decision-making. I'll add that youth really expressed not only wanting or imagining those opportunities to be heard, but also wanting to be known as a full person and not just the kid in foster care in those spaces when they do exert their voice. And how interesting that the purpose of the methodology is to really elevate voice and provide a more holistic understanding of someone's experience and Those are the exact things that they reported that they were seeking as far as opportunities, these unique ways to express themselves and to be heard. Jill, I'm also interested in your perspective. I'd love to know more about your involvement in the project and Theater Lab's role. Theater Lab was thrilled to be part of this project. We've been doing educational outreach for many years, and the program that Mariana and I connected on she had heard about through ChildNet, I believe, and it was originally called Authors of Act Two. Authors of Act Two, as we collaborated, the name had changed to At Center. And the purpose of that program is to bring the strength of the voices back to the youth at risk, youth in foster care, underserved youth, those in alternative schools. So when I normally run this program, I go into places like Pace, High Ridge Family Center, Juvenile Advocacy, and I work with those students through theater, arts, and writing. That's my normal medium with the programs that we do. So when we combined and used photo voice, it was a really interesting switch for us. But either way, what I do with whatever I get from the students we work with, we take that and then bring that to our next outreach program, Lab Rats. And that's a cohort of high school students who come together to create a piece of devised theater and then bring that to the stage to share the stories that the youth that we worked with in Ed Center had created. Excellent. Just 
on a personal note, I have a colleague who is in Toronto and I recently saw that she put on improv classes for youth. And I thought that's so cool, right? There's these alternative ways of getting youth involved in arts and theater and those types of things to really express their stories. So Jill, how do you see dissemination outlets such as theater lab supporting more meaningful partnerships between researchers and participant co-researchers? Well, theater lab really sees theater and art as an active community. Whatever we put on here, be it a main stage or an educational outreach program, we really see the power of voices and the power of stories and storytelling being able to send a mission and create action and advocacy in the community more so than just entertainment. So I think we have this platform, we have this incredible place with a stage and an audience and community members that want to hear what the youth have to say. So the more we can spread awareness and create action to better the lives of the youth, the more theaters that can see the value in all of this, the better it is for everybody. Can you talk a little bit about the performance aspect of it? So when this culminated, it wasn't just the photos and the debriefing around the photos, but there was actually that performance at Theater Lab. Can you talk to me about what that process looked like in terms of putting that performance on and the attendance and how it was received? Sure. We took the transcriptions from the youth in the sessions that we worked with. Normally, I would take writing from the youth that I had worked with when it's a writing program. And we bring that to a hand-selected group of, it was about 10 high school students, juniors and seniors who came together and we call them the Lab Rats and Rats, stands for Rising Artists Theater Society. And they come together with a professional playwright. We worked with Gina Monte and she and I and the group of students collaborated to write an original script. And we took the stories from the youth we built a script, it was a series of vignettes and monologues and things, and then they worked and rehearsed and wrote on their feet till we came up with the final script. It was produced, directed, it was on Theater Lab stage, a fully realized professional production with technical elements all included, and it really was an incredible intersection between science and art, being able to have the audience that we had of not just theater goers, but researchers and clinicians as well. It was just an incredible collaboration and the night was really special. Something that we really added to how special that event and evening was, was the opportunity that youth who had participated in the study and the ones who created their stories and whose voice was being represented in their photography, some of them were actually able to come and attend the community event. And so being able to walk into this space on FAU's campus, see their photography represented in their narratives displayed in a gallery type setting and having also spent so much time with them. So to recognize their physical and you know, emotional reactions, having known them over a period of time was energizing, of course, to see. And then hearing them as the performances carried out, say, that was mine. I said that. And just whispering to each other, being able for them to participate and see their stories displayed. And I'll use the word displayed because it was coming back to them in that way was a wonderful opportunity to bring them in and have them continue into the conversation ongoing. Excellent. So speaking of ongoing participation, I want to acknowledge that many episodes of this season's podcast include a youth or a parent with lived experience as a guest. And I know you all tried to reach out to youth who participated in your study to join us, but had a hard time reaching them. And so Mariana, can you tell us a little bit about those efforts and some of the barriers that you encountered after the research project had ended in terms of keeping in touch with those participants? 
the sample of youth who were participants in this study, we had mentioned reaching out for a podcast platform to have those who had turned 18 as adults now. And one of our youth had turned 18. And so it was limited to that one youth who I was trying to see and offer this opportunity to. And she had actually transitioned from the group home where we had connected with her to another group home. And it didn't work out in the time frame for this airing. I have heard back now. So that's wonderful that even though some of that transition occurs, that we were able to maintain contact. I know that as a point of reflection, I've participated in one other photo voice project prior to this one, and it was with mothers in the child welfare system who also were in substance use recovery. And that was to explore their experiences at that intersection. And in that research, the women being adults, they were able to be the primary voices all the way through and into dissemination. So not just active in the research process, but presenting to national conference audiences. And here in Florida in particular, they joined the state's conference for dependency attorneys. As co researchers and together with faculty here from FAU, we were able to introduce them and offer support, but it was really the mothers themselves in the room with more than 100 attorneys presenting their own findings, answering questions and engaging in direct dialogue. Walking out of that room, one of the mothers was like, you know, this deep breath and said just spontaneously, that was the most empowering experience of my life. And so instead of Jill and I trying to speak to the findings of this project, which we're so happy to do, but being able to hear directly from youth and youth having the opportunities to speak for themselves would be the priority. There's a mini reunion we had talked about when youth schedules have a little bit more time. Now that we have kind of some of the initial findings drafted and a report and something tangible for youth to kind of re-engage back with, an opportunity to take that and share that with them and have the conversation about continuing to prioritize their choices. And as we start to prepare the way that this would get disseminated or for publication or who sees it in what ways or what do we want to highlight in the directions we go, having them guide those next steps. And so that's our plan for the spring. I'm going to deviate a little bit, but I'm just curious on your thoughts on this, Mariana, because I think what you bring up is a barrier for a lot of researchers when they want to engage with youth, particularly youth who are in the child welfare system, which is that it can be really hard to figure out who has the authority to provide consent for youth to participate in studies like these if they are not a legal adult. What I've seen out there, there isn't really clear guidance on a singular way to do this. I've worked with folks who have gone through attorneys, who have gone through case managers and those types of things. So can you speak to either on this project or other projects, ways that you have addressed that particular barrier with getting them to the table in the first place? Well, for youth in foster care, like you're describing, there are additional layers of consideration in terms of where that consent comes from. In our particular study, we did review other research where youth populations and youth in foster care had consent and assent procedures as a source of some guidance, and then also partnered very, very closely with ChildNet and the State's Department of Children and Families to gain an understanding of how that would work and how to best represent youth and families' rights in their informed consent process for participating in research. And so we included a consent process and an informed assent process for the youth as well. So making sure that there was dual consent or assent 
that was coming from both the legal entities that would represent these youth's interest as adults, whether or not that was apparent, even if the child was in care, if there was a termination of parental rights, then it was sought through that parent. And then, of course, the youth themselves assenting that this is something that they're interested in participating and they're fully informed of what that involves. In photo voice research in particular, we also had additional processes of assent and making sure that what youth created in terms of their photography and how it would be used or represented, that was their choice. As they created photographs, circling back, making sure to show examples of how this might look and like your narrative explaining and the transcription of your photograph, how that can be matched together. So they could really see, it wasn't just us telling them, they could see how might this be represented and then choose or elect which photographs, if any, they had taken and shared that they wanted just to keep in the group process or the research process or any that they would wanna share with other external audiences. And they would maintain that choice photograph by photograph, anything that they did, they wanted to change their mind as they went through the different sessions, they had the opportunity to say, nope, let's not share that one. Just making sure they maintain as much ownership over what they created themselves was certainly a priority. And I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit about the consideration that are so important in that process. Absolutely. And Jill, I'm curious, were the youth that participated involved in the script development at any point in time as far as providing feedback on that? They were not. That wasn't something that we had sort of written into any piece of the research and it wasn't really something that we were able to bring them here to do. All the writing was done at Theater Lab and that, though, is a really interesting component that I would love to be able to incorporate in the future because students' voices is why we do what we do, empowering them to be able to be heard and understand the power of their own voice. So bringing that in in the future, it would be wonderful. I love that element, too. And I know that just the opportunity to get something started and do something this first time is amazing, but then thinking about, well, what could be and what would we do next time is such an opportunity. And going back to kind of what I was reflecting on earlier about youth expressing wanting to be known as a full person and not just as a youth in care, what an opportunity to be able to participate directly in kind of the relational aspects of coming together and jointly producing something and what that might mean for bridging that gap in a different way is a wonderful opportunity for a future iteration. Great. And it's so interesting because I've been having conversations with other researchers doing work in this space. And it is a little bit of a departure sometimes from when we're classically trained to do research, right? And how involved our participants are in the process. And this participatory action research methodology is a real departure sometimes from the way that we traditionally do things and making sure that youth are included at all stages of the process. So I appreciate you filling us in on what you did this time, what you might do differently next time. So Jill, Mariana, your colleague on this project, Dr. Morgan Cooley and I have had a number of conversations about the challenges of recruiting folks with lived experience into our research and evaluation work generally. What are some of the challenges that you faced and do you have any ideas for how we might be able to better engage them in our work? Recruitment for this study, I would reflect, was pretty straightforward. And so we shared flyers and descriptions with different group home sites and were able to have meetings to convey the nature of the study. And so they were able to provide those materials and offer the opportunity to youth who were interested and available to join. But one barrier that certainly showed up 
And that could be a challenge in my experience with other primary research data collection efforts is scheduling. And youth, for example, they have different schedules and different school schedules and extracurricular activities and some work. And they have services and court and other appointments. And that's a long list that you're navigating. For photo voice, the heart of the process is really the dialogue among a group. These are not one-on-one conversations. It can be scheduled here and there and otherwise. But finding a time for this group of people to come together and then to keep coming back together for the next session and the third session and the fourth session to build over time, that can really limit your sample. But the data and the detail and the depth of data collection is such a pro that that trade-off I've always found to be very worthwhile. And so the scheduling challenges aside, it worked out. Similar challenges have come up in the other photo voice study I mentioned with mothers and their schedules being able to come back time again and time and again with navigating multiple systems and all that that involves for their lives and schedules. I'll say that for both those women and these youth in these two particular studies, all who began continued to participate and committed over that period of time to a project that is very time intensive. And that's something that I'd like to go and ask the youth about, but it feels like in some ways a commitment to being able to share their voice. And when we brought back some examples to the groups of what their photographs might look like paired with their narratives, there was tremendous eagerness and excitement to see themselves represented. <laughs> like, oh, I got to take a picture of this. Can I keep it? You know, like, how am I going to access this now that I have it in my hands and I see myself displayed in this way and represented in this way? So that really speaks perhaps more to retention in research than recruitment, but also perhaps part of the conversation. But challenges always exist for sure. Jill may have other thoughts, but I'll add that being able to connect with entities and those who have relationships. I know for women in the photo voice study that I mentioned, being able to connect with people who are representing their interest was an opportunity and avenue to kind of snowball sample in that study in particular, and was a big support in being able to bring women into that conversation through people that they respected. That's helpful. Jill, did you want to add anything to that? There has most certainly been a challenge in finding really any youth to participate, be it those with lived experience or be it those in the public school system or alternative schools. There has been a level of attrition that comes from lack of transportation to be able to implement programs at Theater Lab. I found that the most successful way for me to navigate this is to be able to set up sessions at the places themselves. So when I went into PACE Center for Girls, they allowed me an hour and a half twice a week during their school day to be able to administer the programs that I do. So I think that that seems to be, and us, Mariana and I being able to go into the homes and being at their actual facility seems to be the only solution I've found to solve that problem. Well, and that makes sense, right? Given the many scheduling demands that Mariana mentioned earlier, I think that speaks to, if you can bring it to them, that might make it more conducive for them to participate. Absolutely. Always. And Jill, I just had a follow-up question around the actors, because you mentioned that these were, I think you said they were high school students who helped put this together, the rats. How did you engage with those students around issues of child welfare and honoring these voices, these youth who are in care have shared their experiences with us to be turned into a theater project. How did you work with those students around educating them on issues around child welfare and foster youth in particular? 
That's a great question. That was a new component for us. We really started off our process with a discussion around what they knew about foster care, what they knew about the situations that the youth that we had been receiving these very powerful stories from had been through. And anytime a student walks into my classroom, safety is my number one. They always know that they are safe to share their stories and they know that any stories that come into their space are to be respected and honored at the highest level. So we talked a lot about what they had known about foster care, if they had any friends at their school that they knew were involved in that. And a lot of them had zero prior knowledge. So they took this with a lot of weight. They really, I think the discussions that we had allowed them to feel the responsibility of the stories they were telling, the importance of the way they were going to present these words that were not their own to the world. I'm glad that you mentioned the care that you took in educating those students around these issues. Like you said, they really didn't have any experience with this. And those are similar issues that we have faced on the research side of things as well, where we've had interviewers who may not be as familiar with the child welfare system, or may have never even interacted with somebody with lived experience with the child welfare system. And so on the research side of things, we've compensated youth with lived experience to actually do practice interviews and try and help them be a little bit more comfortable in those interactions and support them in building rapport and making sure that they're truly listening. And I appreciate the care that your team took with that process. I think it will also be important to take care and have consideration for how different youth might feel or want to participate in public facing opportunities. And so that may not be the same for every youth and being able to offer opportunities that fit the vision for what they would want to participate in would be something that we hope to do in the future and making sure that those opportunities are conveyed. And so they have really clear expectations and feel equipped and excited about what it is that they decide to join into. Can I ask a follow-up question to that? Because I think it's interesting. So I know that the theater lab component was part of this, but you also mentioned having the photo gallery with photos and part of the narrative associated with those photos. I've seen this in other photo voice projects and they actually sometimes give the youth the opportunity, sort of like an art gallery opening to go and present their work and be there. And it does remove that layer of confidentiality. And I'm curious what your experience has been with those. I know you have other photo voice experience beyond this project. Can you speak a little bit more on how that type of experience and them being that co-presenter of their experiences and really being that co-leader of the research is a little bit different when they lose that element of confidentiality that is typically associated with research. I think in the way we displayed the photos and the way Mariana was able to mat and frame them with the youth's response alongside the photo, there was a lot of confidentiality still maintained through the selection of photos that would not necessarily identify them, as well as the words that were associated with each photograph in the gallery. Absolutely. I think that those opportunities to maintain confidentiality in some of the display was something that we took great care with. But to the point of youth coming and joining in the discussion, that's absolutely something that would erase anonymity and being able to offer the opportunity to do so. So for youth who want to come and participate, being able to have that direct dialogue with stakeholders or community members or others who are receiving their messages 
and not have that translated for them, you know, that's really the goal of some of Photo Voice's work and design and the advocacy component and the self-advocacy component of what the intent is. But I also think that that's something that's hard to do. And uh, even when you think that you want to participate or it sounds great and you're excited about it, you may not have had experience in those forums before, perhaps, or you may not know exactly what to expect or it may be different than your expectations. I think that that's always a real learning opportunity to think about ways that we could share with youth what these community-facing platforms look like. And they have more of an idea of what that might look like or feel like for them and choice in that process. And then also if it give them alternatives, depending on how they're thinking or feeling, it might also be opportunities for them to have direct dialogue, but maybe it's in a smaller group setting, or maybe it's one-on-one, or maybe it's like you're saying, they're standing by their photographs, so they're having small conversations. There's so many ways that we could create those that match what youth would be most excited about and feel most comfortable with. And so that would be absolutely something that we would want to try to develop further. And out of curiosity, when you did the study with the mothers, is it best practice to debrief in those situations like afterwards? So if they are present for something like an art gallery of their photographs or a performance, would it be best practice for the researcher to then debrief with them that experience afterwards? I think that would be ideal. And with the Photo Voice project with the mothers that you're talking about, we had those opportunities because we did transportation together and we had other direct contact because we're talking with mothers directly in terms of that relationship. So the opportunity for us to debrief with youth is coming up in that in our mini reunion. And so that's definitely something that would be part of the conversation about next directions for the results. And also just if we were going to create other experiences, what might those look like or what would you be excited about? And if we were going to make the experience that you did have better, like how did it feel? What would you do differently? Have the opportunity to be able to hear from youth directly on what to do next time is important. So Mariana, based on what you learned from this study and your other work, what's next? Next steps or a jumping off point from this study, we really want to make sure is guided by youth directly. So that upcoming follow-up is one step to kind of begin exploring the directions that they think are the priorities based on what they created in this research. And so primary there is really taking back and saying, ways and opportunities to really focus on translating what they shared into actionable changes in the programs and policies they experience. Something that I'm drawn to as we were writing up the findings and trying to put pen to paper, we created a table that was really in the words of youth. And so not necessarily your traditional implication section for research and publication, but something that instead of us interpreting the findings into recommendations, just going back through the data and being able to use the words of youth to say, I need this. This is important. So I need caseworkers who do this and I need judges who do this. I think that table is an opportunity to imagine and go back and take it to youth to kind of translate those recommendations they shared into some tangibles that they would want to see and experience so that we're not doing that translation for them, but like what would help work and begin to imagine the ways in which those recommendations get implemented and felt and received across systems of care. Some of the things that we're talking about and ideas for next steps, and if we were ever gonna be able to do this again, 
but being able to create platforms in a way that they get to be known and seen as a whole person and not just for their experience in foster care. So bringing them together with the youth who are doing the theater pieces or being directly involved is going to be an exciting opportunity that I hope that we get to create for both those youth that are in this current project and being able to continue that involvement and participation ongoing in a relationship that doesn't end, that's not project specific as a real hope. And I love what you talked about as far as you've utilized your research skills to say, okay, here's what we're seeing across all these different youth, right? And coming up with some general recommendations, but then really looking to the youth to give the measurables. How are we actually going to do this in practice? Because I think that that happens a lot with recommendations. They can be vague or they can be broad and without any action steps and specifics, sometimes they get lost in the shuffle. So I think that's a really important follow-up piece. Jill, how about you? How about for Theater Lab? Anything from this project that is lending itself towards next steps, either related to this project or just generally working differently with child welfare stakeholders? Absolutely. It has been such an incredible experience. And I felt so grateful to be able to partner with Mariana and Morgan and the School of Social Work. I am looking to broaden our reach and deepen our reach even more through other university connections, other community connections, and being able to incorporate research will just be that much more powerful towards what we can do to be able to better impact youth in their lives. I'll add, we've mentioned them along the way just because we can't help it, but just a formally shout out to the wonderful team of researchers who were active and contributors to this project. So Jill and I, of course, but also Dr. Morgan Cooley, Dr. Heather Thompson, Dr. Heather Howard, and Dr. Joy McClellan all had pieces and hands in making all this come to life. And so making sure that we were able to share their contributions, even if they couldn't be joining us for this particular moment. Perfect. Thank you. So what is the number one piece of advice you'd give to other child welfare researchers about collaborating with children and families with lived experience? Jill, let's start with you. Sure. I would say that they should never hesitate to reach out to local theaters or to anyone that has a space to be able to display art in any way, shape, or form. The way that brings what the students have experienced to life and the way that connects the community on a broader scale can be so powerful. All of us theater makers, all of us art creators, we want to have that impact and we want to be able to collaborate on this level. So just reach out and we are thrilled to be a part of anything like this. Great. And how about you, Mariana? I got to go with just do it. There are other designs, of course, in terms of participatory action research and, and connecting directly with collaborating with children and families with lived experience. But something I do appreciate about Photo Voice as a design is that group process and the way that it occurs over time. It's an investment, but it's so wonderfully fruitful and mutually enriching. And so being able to come back together and get to know, in this instance, the youth, just as an example, who began as very reserved, transitioning over time as really exuberant. And it creates that opportunity to sustain a relationship ongoing and into the future where otherwise conversations might end. And so I think that being able to connect in those ways as a researcher, it's been one of the most rewarding aspects of my work. And I can't wait to, like we're talking about, learn from this experience and how to better create these opportunities ongoing and contribute to them in the future. Well, we certainly have been inspired by this project. Our Institute team has decided that we would like to 
delve further into more photo voice research and what that can do for child welfare research moving forward and building those collaborative relationships with youth and families and the workforce. So we certainly appreciate your willingness to come on and talk about your project. I wanted to give both of you an opportunity to do any plugs or call outs. I know you called out your co-researchers, but if there's anything that you'd like to plug around current projects or upcoming things at the theater, anything you want to shout out? Sure. I would be remiss if I didn't give a huge thank you to the entire theater lab team. Our producing artistic director, Matt Stabile, has been the mastermind behind all of our programs, has been the mastermind behind all of our education programs. Lou Tyrrell, Michael McLean, our technical director, all of them came together to make this happen. Everything we do is an active community and we'd love to share it with all of you. I would like to add a big thank you for the youth who participated in this study and gave so much of themselves to the project and their commitment to creating something that would have translational value in the future. I'd like to thank all of our guests for sharing their knowledge and experiences with us today. If you're interested in learning more about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at www.ficw.fsu.edu. You can also follow the Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at FSU Child Welfare. Thank you to our executive producer, Mariana Tutwiler, our assistant director of communications, Emily Joyce, and our audio engineer and editor, Izzy Craig. And finally, thanks to all of you for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Lisa Magruder for the Florida Institute for Child Welfare.